you have your Bibles today, would you find the 40th Psalm? Psalm 40. We're going to get back to our study of Psalms. We've been off of it here for a couple of weeks now, but we're going to jump back into it. We come to the 40th Psalm. Psalm 40. As you're finding that, let me just say a word of thanks uh, to Brother Jimmy. I know he's not here today, but I'm going to say thank you anyway. He covered my teaching duties for me this past week so that I could be gone to camp and, and church. I want you to know I appreciate the freedom to go do things like that. You're, you're allowing me the liberty to do that it means that you have shared this past week in the salvation of 12 kids and the call of four youngsters to ministry and numerous other conversations that had to do with healing and broken homes and things of that nature. So I appreciate that, church. And uh, Bono Baptist has a mark on the lives of those kids now. And uh, I just want you to know that it's not lost on me. I do appreciate it. Psalm 40, let me read it here, and then we're going to go back and kind of pull it apart. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, and he established my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that, they, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who, who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinks upon me, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Psalm 40 is a very familiar psalm to most of us, at least the first half of that psalm. It's used quite often. 
To some, they look at this psalm and they really consider it to be two individual texts that have been mated together, joined together. Others look at it as a psalm of praise for deliverance followed by a psalm of petition all in one psalm. This morning, we're just going to take the psalm in its entirety. We're going to consider it as a whole, a unified expression of David. Now, in this psalm, we do see a despair in an overwhelming, insurmountable situation, this horrible pit. We do see in this psalm the facing of difficulties that we are inadequate to overcome, the need for divine deliverance. We see that deliverance. We see the petition that follows. Today, as we look at the psalm, though, we're going to divide it into four parts. We're going to look at the plight, the play, the provision, and the product we see in this psalm. But specifically, what I'd like you to do is we pull this psalm apart and look at the various parts. Pay particular attention to the process of crying out to the Lord and to the response we're to have after the Lord acts on our behalf. That's really what I want to draw your attention to, is the process of crying out and our response to the deliverance that comes, but we'll put all the pieces together. So let's just delve into this. Let's begin with the plight. That's the first thing we see, the plight. You see that listed there in verse 2. The horrible pit, the miry clay. This pit of destruction, this pit of misery described here. That phrase, horrible pit, or in some of your versions, it uses the phrase pit of destruction. That phrase literally refers to being in a state of ruin or to be turned over to desolation. What is literally being said here is, I find my life in a state of ruin. I'm facing circumstances that make me feel as if my life has been turned over to desolation. This isn't, well, I ran off in the ditch and just need someone to pull me out. This is, I'm in desperate times. I'm in despair. I'm in distress. In fact, in the most literal sense, this phrase, horrible pit, can carry the meaning of realm of death. You could take this into Hebrew and translate it to mean, I find myself in the realm of death. That's how drastic this is. This horrible pit is equated to a realm of death, a state of ruin, of desolation. It's described here along with the phrase miry clay, which is simply a muddy settlement. Uh, a muddy sediment, excuse me, a muddy sediment that will hold you, bind you, restrict you. It's inescapable, and it can cause panic. Several years ago, my cousin and I were on a fishing trip. We did that quite often. In this particular day, we went to a place called Cow Shows. It's on the Little Red River. We were going to wade fish. And Cal Shows was running pretty low that day. They weren't running much water. And, well, it was pretty tough finding any good fishing. And we'd separated. 
And at Cow Shoals, there's a little feeder creek that comes in. And you, you won't catch trout up in it, but I'm thinking, hey, a fish is a fish. On a hard day, I'll take a fish. So I waded up in this feeder creek. And I got off on the side, and for the first time ever, I got off into a sediment I'd never, just never encountered. I stepped in, and I sunk down, and it vacuum sealed around me. I couldn't move. And the more I tried to move, the deeper I went. It occurred to me that if the Southwest Power Administration decided to begin a generation, not only would the river rise, but this feeder creek that watered back up in it, and I would be in some trouble. At that point, panic set in. I wasn't close enough to my cousin to get help. He had no clue where I'd went. I'm stuck, and the more I struggled, the deeper I went and the tighter it held. I was probably up over my knees about that time. The water was about waist deep. And through the process of figuring things out, I'll jump more to the end here. I'm in this miry substance that vacuum sealed around me. It's holding me down. I can't move. But I realize there's the end of a log sticking up in the middle of the creek. And if I traced where it went, it had to be right here, although you couldn't see it because it was covered in the sediment. And I realized if I could fall over this way, my head could still be above water. So what I had to do is I had to fall down, lay out, and work one leg loose. Lay my leg over where I thought the log would be, work my other leg loose, flop over to where I thought the log would be, and let my feet sink until it hit a log. At that point, I'm only ankle deep. And ankle deep, I could handle. And I could finally maneuver myself out to a harder substrate and get out. But I found myself in this situation where the sediment had vacuum sealed around me and I couldn't move. That's what a lot of people call quicksand. It's not quick, it's not sandy, but it'll suck you in and hold you. That's what the psalmist is describing. Being vacuum sealed into a substance that will not let you go, and the more you struggle, the worse it gets. This horrible pit of miry clay, that's what's described here. Being in this state of being held down. In Psalm 69, verse 2, the Bible says, I sink deep in mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters and the floods will overtake me. Here the psalmist, David, says, I'm in this horrible pit, a state of ruin and desolation, in the state of death, and it has a hold of me, and I cannot break free. That's what's described here. That's the plight described in this situation. Now, if we take a minute and consider a realm of death that holds you and will not let you go. I think what we find here is an apt description of those in the pit of sin. You find here a very apt description of what it's like to live in a life under the condemnation of sin apart from the salvation Christ can bring to you. 
You exist in a state of spiritual ruin. You abide in the realm of spiritual death and you are held by sin and you can't break free. That is a description of spiritual ruin, spiritual desolation, the spiritual death that people abide under. In fact, in Ephesians 2.1, the Bible says we are all dead in our trespass and sin before we come to faith in Christ. The reality is we are born into this world under the condemnation of sin. We are born into this world with a sin nature. We are born in this world because of the sin of Adam under the curse of sin. We're born into a pit of sin. It has a hold of us and will not let go and we cannot break loose. We dwell in a realm of spiritual death from the beginning. It's a destruction that sin brings, that we don't escape in our own efforts, that we can escape in our own efforts, that we are insufficient to escape in our own efforts. It is a miry clay that is unbreakable. This miry clay that the psalmist describes holding him down, that is the description of sins. It is sin's hold on our lives, the unbreakable hold of sin. In fact, the reality is we're servants of sin until we come to faith in Christ. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, therefore, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. Sin is the master of all those who have not received Christ as their savior. It's as if they're down in a horrible pit, down in this muck and mire of sin that holds them and will not let them go. They can manage to kind of live a good life. They can kind of manage to be good people and likable people. But in reality, sin has a hold on them that they cannot break. That is the state of every human being who has not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They abide under the sin nature, and the sin nature is their master, and that master has control over them, and that master they will serve, and the condemnation of that master they will receive. They will receive the wages paid out by their master, those who are a slave of sin. And the wages of their master, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This horrible pit of sin is the realm of death spiritual death, being separated from God in this life, in this existence, and throughout eternity forever, spiritual death. You see, David describes here the state of every human being who has not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Every person is born into a horrible pit of sin. Sin owns them, controls them. Sin is the master, and they will get the wages, the payment of that master, spiritual death. We can't escape that. We can't break the hold of sin. We don't crawl out of the pit of sin. Only Jesus breaks the hold of sin. Only Jesus breaks the control of sin. Only Jesus pulls us out of the pit of sin. Freedom is only found in Jesus. In fact, going back to John 8, beginning with verse 34, but Carrying on, it says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not abide in the house forever, but the son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. 
You see, here we have a description of every human being born into this world under the condemnation of sin, under the control of sin, in the pit of sin, yet Jesus says, I can set you free. Here's how it happened. Jesus entered this world taking on human form. He lived a perfect life, the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve. He took our sin upon himself, dying in our place upon the cross, removing the condemnation of sin from us as he was condemned in sin. He was buried and rose again, alive now that he can offer forgiveness and eternal life. What Jesus did was this. He jumped down into the pit with us, took all the miry sin upon himself so that we were freed from it, as he lifted us up out of the pit of sin. That's what Jesus has done for us. Freedom from sin is in Jesus. Freedom from sin and forgiveness of the consequences of sin, it only comes through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We've got people in the pit of sin who think I can be forgiven I can overcome, I can crawl out of this pit if I just act good enough, if I do enough good things, if I can be moral enough, if I can donate enough money to charities, if I can have a church membership, if I could be baptized, if I could do this, if I could do that. And the reality is this, you just dig yourself deeper in the pit. It's like that day when I was fishing and the more I moved, the deeper I sunk. That's all you do. But Jesus has jumped into the pit of sin for us and lifts us out of it when we fall before him with a heart of repentance expressed through faith saying, Jesus, I'm in a pit and I can't get out. Would you lift me out of this sin? You see, the reality is freedom from sin and the forgiveness from the consequence of sin. It's applied to us through a heart of repentance and faith in Jesus. And so when we read Psalm 40, our mind immediately goes to this horrible pit, this realm of death that sin brings us into, Jesus frees us from. But David was not some heathen. David was a chosen vessel of God, and he's the one talking about being in the pit. What that tells me is this, God's children may find themselves in horrible pits. As a child of God, rescued out of the pit of sin, I may, in my life, find myself facing times of desperation, despair, and difficulty. I may find myself, even as a child of God, facing situations and circumstances in life that are painful, difficult, and overwhelming to me. I may find myself in a pit that is horrible, even as a child of God. I mean, this is David, the anointed one of God, the chosen one of God, this is David, the one that Bible says, a man after God's own heart. This is David who says, I was down in a horrible pit. I was stuck. Even God's chosen may find themselves at times facing distress and difficulty in this world. It is very wrong of us to preach a gospel that offers forgiveness, that offers restoration, that offers sanctification, that offers justification, that offers glorification, and all the other occasions that you can add in there and not be honest with people and say, you know what? It doesn't free you from the problems of this world. Jesus did say, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Brother and sister in Christ, I'm going to tell you today, being a child of God does not 
make us immune to difficulties and problems and painful situations and even times of despair. But it does give us access to the one who carries us through those times and lifts us up out of them. You see, even children of God may find themselves in these times. Even the redeemed may face pits of distress and difficulties. And as it is with the lost person, so it is with the child of God. Our hope in these times is found in Jesus. So that's what we really want to talk about today. That's where we want to focus. We understand the plight. We understand difficulty. But let's talk about the play. The play, what is our move? What is our action? What, what do we do? We find ourselves in these horrible pits, these times of distress, despair, these overwhelming, insurmountable situations. What do we do? Well, verse 1 says the play we make is the cry unto the Lord, the cry that the Lord hears. Crying unto the Lord is the play that we must make when we realize we're in a horrible pit full of miry clay. We cry unto the Lord. Time and again, the Bible tells us we should cry unto the Lord, call out to the Lord. The Bible tells us that salvation comes from crying out unto the Lord. Deliverance is found when we cry out unto the Lord. The book of Romans says, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Where do we find salvation? Where do we find deliverance? It's in calling out, crying out unto the Lord. So let's go back to where we started with the horrible pit. The cry that's needed. Well, let me tell you, the person condemned in sin has only one play to make. Cry unto the Lord. That person who is still condemned in sin, separated from God by sin, that person who's never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that person who abides in the realm of death, that, who is in that spiritual separation from God, that person in the pit of sin, they have only one recourse, one action, one play to make. Cry unto the Lord. You see, if you're, if you're here today, if you're listening online, if you're engaging with us today, the reality is this. If you realize that you're condemned in sin, separated from God by sin, you're abiding in that sin nature, you're in the pit of sin, you have only one recourse, cry unto the Lord. Your own good works, your own good efforts, your, your own whatever isn't going to make a difference. You cry unto the Lord. That's what happens when you recognize you're in the pit. Under the condemnation of death, facing the punishment of sin, you need to be delivered. You call out to the Lord. You cry to Jesus. You cry to him with a repentant heart. A heart that says, I want to turn from that to Jesus. You call out with a heart of faith where you receive him as the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. You call out to Jesus. You see, if, if you're listening to me and, and you know I've been abiding in the realm of death under the condemnation of sin, but I want to cry out to Jesus. I want to do that. It is so simple. God's own word says all you do is simply this. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. For with the heart you believe unto righteousness and with your mouth you make confession unto salvation. You just talk to him and say, God, I confess it. I'm a sinner and I'm, I'm in the realm of death because of my sin, but 
I confess Jesus died for me, and I confess I believe he rose again, and I confess right now I need him to come into my life and rescue me from my sin, save me from the punishment of sin, pull me out of the condemnation of sin, give me new life, give me eternal life, make me right. Jesus, would you be the Lord of my life? Would you be the Savior of my soul? Jesus, I give you my life. It's that simple. You cry unto the Lord. But what about the child of God who's already come to a saving faith? What about those of us who are born again believers? We know we're children of God. What do we do? What's our recourse when we face these pits of despair? Well, my friends, the child of God who is in the pit of distress and difficulty has but one play to make. Cry unto the Lord. You see, church family, the thing is this. Our play is the same no matter who we are. We must cry unto the Lord. As a child of God, if I face despair, if I'm in an overwhelming situation, if I'm in distress, I cry out to my Lord. I don't hold on to the problem. I don't dwell in the problem. I don't try to resolve the problem that I know I can't resolve. I cry unto the Lord. In Psalm 34, the Bible says this about crying to the Lord. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near those who have a broken heart, and he saves those who have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all. See, God promises in his word that as his children cry out to him, he hears and he delivers. His part is to hear and deliver. We only have one part in that, cry out. Cry out to God. Cry out to the Lord. When I cry out to the Lord, he promises he hears and he will deliver. So this morning, I want us to look at crying out to the Lord. We all have situations and we all come to times in our life where we face things where our only recourse is simply to cry out to the Lord. And in this psalm, we learn some key elements about crying out to the Lord. So let's look at these this morning. In this psalm, David shows us some things about crying out to the Lord. Here's the first thing we learn about crying out to the Lord. We cry out in faith and dependence in God. My cry is a cry of faith, being fully dependent in God, on God. You see that in verse 4, where the scripture implores us to trust in the Lord rather than in human ability or worldly wisdom. See, this is the cry that says, God... I'm crying out to you in these situations and in these circumstances, and I am going to trust you. It's not this, God, help me, I'm crying to you, but I'm still going to fix everything myself. That's what we do quite often. You realize that, right? We say our prayer of help me, God, but then we get busy scheming on how we'll fix it all. This is simply the cry of faith that we say, God, I just have to depend on you in this. I'm going to rest in you 
And as you show me what to do, I'll do it. But I'm resting in you. I'm waiting on you. I'm looking to you. God, I'm trusting you and not my wisdom, not my ability, or not anyone else. It's you, God. I need you to work in this one. It's that kind of cry where I simply trust and depend in the Lord. There's a second aspect of this cry. It's a cry of confession. See, we cry out in confession. You see that in verse 12. Look what David says. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. There are more than the hairs on my head. David is crying out and making confession over his own sin. He's not crying out, God, fix this mess I made. He's crying out, God, I'm the one who has sinned. Let me address that first. You see, the reality is sometimes God's children find themselves in pits because we have allowed ourselves to fall back into the miry clay of sinfulness. Sometimes we find ourselves in these situations because we have entertained sin in our heart, indulged sin, and we've put ourselves back into it. And it doesn't do me any good just to cry out, God, help me get out of it. My cry has to be a cry of confession where I own up to my sin and confess my sin. God, I'm crying out to you, but I'm crying out confessing I have sinned and put myself in this situation. And God, I need you to forgive me. That's my first goal. That's my heart's desire, to be back right with you, God. God, forgive me. I confess my sin. It's the understanding that we cry out in instances like this to confess, understanding that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get things right with God first and then worry about getting out of the pit. When my sin has put me in the pit, I cry out in confession. There's a third aspect of crying out here. We see it again in verse 12. We cry out in honesty. We cry out in honesty. There it mentions the innumerable evils. Look, we have to be honest about the innumerable evils that surround us. Well, how do I know what an evil is? How do I have ability to assess innumerable evils? Well, this involves learning to assess these evils according to God's word, according to God's standards, rather than worldly standards. How do I know the evils I need to be praying to be delivered from if I can't even assess what, it, what is evil? I have to have a distinct understanding of here's what God's standards are, here's what God's word says, and there's what culture says, and they're distinct and different. So I have to have this ability to discern what is really the problem. And the only way I discern that is according to God's word. And part of discerning what is the problem, part of discerning the evil, is being able to discern where is the source of this affliction, and who is the source of this affliction? Because did you know that sometimes we feel that we're threatened or afflicted by certain individuals, but the reality is the individual's not really the source of the problem. There's a source behind the individual that's causing the problem. Did you know that Satan can work through people even unwittingly? 
to hinder us. And we might take our aggression and our focus out on them and they're not even the problem. It's the person behind the problem or the person behind the person, the problem behind the person, it's Satan. We need to learn to discern these things. How do we get that discernment? Through the scriptures. We need to honestly be able to express the evils we feel afflicted with as well as the evils we've afflicted ourselves with. You see, if I'm gonna cry out to God, I have to be able to do it honestly and assess the situation appropriately. And that comes from a knowledge vested in God's word so that I can call an ace an ace and a spade a spade and all that kind of stuff, right? And so I need a spiritual discernment to honestly cry out, to understand here's where the problem stems from, God, here's what I need your help with, or here's the problem I brought upon myself, God, would you help me in this problem? We need an honest assessment. Here's the fourth aspect of crying out to God. We cry out for deliverance and help. That's verse 13, you're like, ooh, you're a genius, pastor. You came up with that yourself? Well, it's there, verse 13. We cry out for deliverance and help. And you're like, well, that's what this whole thing's about. Well, listen, though, here's the thing. When we cry out for deliverance and help, what we do is we cry out for deliverance and help. We're seeking this deliverance and help in the form of that which God in his sovereign wisdom would work in our lives. When I cry out, God, deliver and help me, that cry should be the cry that says, God, in your sovereignty, I trust you to deliver me. God, according to your wisdom, I trust you to work in my life. God, according to your plan, according to your will, God, you are sovereign, I trust in you. I'm crying out for deliverance and help according to your sovereign will. You know what happens many times when we cry out to God? We say, God, help me, and here's how I'd like you to do this. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Step three, do this. And make this person that and that person that. God, I've already got the plan. I just need you to make it happen. What this is is crying out saying, God, you deliver me according to your wisdom, your standards, your will, your sovereign plan. It's not my plan for you, God. I'm not going to dictate to you, God, how you deliver me. I'm going to trust you to deliver me according to your sovereign will. That's the cry. It's not a cry for deliverance based on our desire. It's a cry for deliverance based on what God wills for our lives. Those of us who would dictate to God how he delivers us, it's like being adrift in a sea of despair and God sends a rowboat and we're like, oh no. Or a flat bottom boat and we're like, uh-uh. Bass boat, nah. Ski boat, nah. Yacht, well, maybe. Hey, look, if you're adrift in a sea of despair, if God sends a boat, get in it. It doesn't matter what kind of boat it is. But we cry out for help, praying, God, deliver and help. And here's how I want it to come. And if it doesn't come that way, eh, I'm not sure about it. That's not how this cry works. This is a cry that says, God, I trust you in your sovereignty. Help me. Here's the fifth aspect of this cry. It, we cry out, releasing offenders. We cry out releasing offenders. In verse 14 and 15, David addresses those who have brought evil against him, who have worked against him, have plotted against him, and he talks to God about, hey God, would you get them? 
But he never says, God, let me get them. He never says, God, I need a chance. I need a chance to get my revenge. He says, God, you handle them. And by doing that, here's what David does. He releases himself from the bitterness of vengefulness. He's gonna let God handle them. So he's free. So in releasing the offenders, he releases himself. There are times that we face circumstances and difficulties and pain, and the reality is there are those who have brought offense against us and inflicted us in that way. And when we call out for help, when we cry unto the Lord, we need to cry in such a way that we will release those who have offended us and caused us pain and difficulties and so forth. What we're doing is we're releasing ourselves from carrying the burden of bitterness and resentment. We're crying unto the Lord, God, deliver me, but in that deliverance, would you handle them? And we let God handle them. We trust what God says in Romans 12 when he says, vengeance is mine. Let me handle it. And so we cry out to God and said, God, here I am. I need your help. I need to be delivered. And I'm facing these people who are, they've just hurt me and they've caused this and they've offended me. But God, I'm going to let them go and trust you to handle it. And you deliver me and help me get back where I need to be with you. It's a cry of release. The next thing we see in this cry, we cry out in helplessness. In helplessness. See that in verse 17. Look at the description David uses. But I am poor and needy. I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinks upon me, you are my help and my deliverer. David cries out for help and he acknowledges, God, I need help and here's why. I'm poor and I'm needy. I'm helpless. I'm helpless, God. I need you to deliver me because I can't deliver myself. This is acknowledging a helplessness so that we open up our lives for the power of God to move. What happens too many times to us is we call out to God, God, I I need your help. We say it, but we still kind of had this attitude of, but you know what? I'm going to man up on this one. I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll be strong enough to face it. God help me, but I'm going to be strong enough. Well, if you're strong enough, you don't need God's strength then, do you? God help me, but you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to be wise enough. Well, if you're wise enough, you don't need God's wisdom, do you? See, this is an attitude that opens up to God and says, God, I don't have the strength, I don't have the wisdom, I'm opening my life up for you to move fully. Move in your power, move in your wisdom. You see, it's often in our weakest moments that we understand the true strength of God the best. It's when we call out in our weaknesses and we admit our limitations that God's grace does become sufficient for us through pain, that God's strength is perfected in us. It's when we're honest and open, when we admit, God, I'm limited. I'm poor and needy. I'm helpless. Would you move in your strength with your grace? That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 describes it this way. He says, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
It's when I acknowledge, God, I'm weak, that the true power of God is poured out on my life. It's a cry of helplessness. But there's one last thing about this cry. And it really is the culmination of the other six things. We cry out with patience. We go back to verse one. We cry out with patience. We can cry out with patience because we cry out in all these other ways. And because we cry out in those ways, we can cry out with patience. The scripture says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Literally, it says waiting, I waited. That's what the Hebrew says. Waiting, I waited. I've been waiting on God and I'm waiting. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting on God. Waiting, I waited. I have that much confidence in God. I'm just waiting for God to move. I'm in this horrible pit of ruin and despair. But I have so much confidence in God, I'm just going to sit here and wait. Waiting, I wait on God. I will wait on God to hear my cry and respond. It's a willingness to wait on God to move, and it reflects this good courage that comes from a confidence in him. It's a waiting that is, that is producing a patience within us, a patience that's fostered by faith so that we don't fret over the distresses. We're confident in God. We're faithful to our faith in God. We understand who God is and what he'll do. We wait on God. We wait on God because we have tasted that God is good and we know he is faithful and so we can wait on God. It's a cry of patience. This is important to have a cry of patience because our waiting on God's deliverance is the opportunity that God uses to enrich our faith. It's in these times of waiting that he moves to grow our faith stronger. It's in these times of waiting that God's presence becomes more real, that his promises become more precious. It's in these times of waiting that his peace is perfected and his joy is surpassing. It's in the times of waiting that he builds our faith and strengthens us. And so we cry unto the Lord, we cry with patience. And when we cry out to God, when we make our play, God responds. And he brings the provision we need. See, we see in this psalm the provision. God responds to the cry of waiting. He, he responds and he brings provision. David says he brings deliverance here. Quickly, we see different provisions God brings in our lives. Verse 1, God inclines to our cry. He hears us. We've already acknowledged in Psalm 34 that when the righteous cry, the Lord hears and he brings deliverance. We know that. The Old Testament tells us that. You can jump over to the New Testament epistles. They testify to that as well. 1 John 5 says, now this is the confidence we have in God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, God has promised that when we cry out to him, abiding in his will, seeking his will, he responds with provision in our lives. He's gonna respond. He inclines to our cry. David points out here that God lifts us up out of a pit. That is the deliverance we're talking about. He brings the deliverance. 
the despair, the difficulties that we can't remove, God moves in them for us. He brings deliverance. Now, I think deliverance comes in more than one fashion. Deliverance can be the grace and the strength we need to abide in the difficulties, or it can be the removal of the difficulties, but either way, God moves with deliverance. He brings deliverance. Thirdly, God establishes our steps. Not only does he move with grace and strength to help us walk through the problem or actually take us out of the problem, he establishes us firmly that we can trod the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He establishes us firmly so that we don't slide right back in. He sets our feet on solid ground. He establishes us so that we can walk the paths he leads us down. He guides us with his Holy Spirit and strengthens us through his Holy Spirit to be established in the faith, to walk in the faith, and to grow in the faith. And then one last thing it speaks of here, God gives us a new song. He gives us a new song. We have a heart of worship that's fueled by the mercies of God. I've experienced the mercies of God by him giving me the grace and the strength I need to face the difficulties or as he has pulled me out of the difficulties and that fuels a heart of worship for God. I live in the understanding of his steadfast love, of his faithfulness. Verse 10 alludes to that. The reality is I have a new understanding of God's grace and mercy and love and it fuels a heart of worship for him. He does that within me. So here we are facing a horrible pit. We cry out to God, God moves with his provision. We expect that out of God, God's not the issue here. God's not the changing variable. God's gonna be faithful, God's gonna be true, God's gonna fulfill his promises, God's gonna do what he always does. His character is unchanging. The variable that changes is you and I. So we need to cry out and we need to cry out appropriately and then when God moves with deliverance, when he brings provision, we need to respond appropriately. So I want to close today by simply mentioning three things that we should do in response. We've seen the plight, we've seen the play, we've seen the provision. Let's talk about the product. The product. What is the product of God's provision in our lives? When I cry out to God and God moves, what's produced in my life? When he delivers me or imparts to me the grace I need in the moment I need it, the provision of God, my friends, should produce noticeable effects in our lives. Here's the first one, worship, worship. When God delivers me out of the horrible pit, it should produce in me a life of worship. I should have a lifestyle, a heart for worship. In fact, the depths of despair from which we are delivered should produce the height of praise that we express. And when you realize you were in the depths of the pit of sin, the realm of death that you couldn't escape, yet Christ came in there, took your sin, and lifted you out of it. He pulled you out of the depths of the pit of death to give you a citizenship in heaven, to give you eternal life. He took you from the depths of sin to the highest glory. That should produce in you the highest praise. We should be people of worship. If you're here today and you, you have experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ in your life, you are a born-again believer, a child of God, you should have a life filled with praise. 
just based off the depths he's pulled you out of and the heights. Do you realize the Bible says he has seated you in heavenly places with Christ Jesus? You went from the lowest you could be to the highest position you can have. That should produce the highest degree of praise. When I understand I'm delivered from the horrible pit, it should produce in me praise. In fact, the degree of misery we face should allow us to measure the degree of mercy we've received. In my life, when there have been dark times and I've faced situations that were insurmountable and I was too weak to even face, and yet God poured his strength upon me and saw me through those times, the misery I experienced should help me recognize the mercy he displayed and drive me to have a heart of worship. The ruin we face allows us to face and praise and recognize the restoration he has brought. Verse three says it this way, this new song, praise to our God. When I have been delivered from the pits of despair, on my lips should be praise to our God. Verse nine and 10 point out that there should be a desire to proclaim the wonderful works of God, to proclaim his righteousness, to proclaim his truth, to proclaim his loving kindness, to proclaim the good news. We should have a desire to proclaim. That's a heart of worship. The second product ties right into it, it's witnessing. When God has pulled me up out of the horrible pit, something it should produce in me is a desire to be a witness to what he's done in my life to testify to what he's done in my life. These lives of worship that proclaim the goodness of God should orient us towards sharing the knowledge of God so that others can know what God's done in our lives and experience the same power in their lives. When God has truly pulled you out of the pit of despair, you should want to tell others, hey, here's what God's done. He could do the same for you. That's being a witness for the Lord. This new song, praise to our God in verse three, look at, look at how it results, look at the influence it has. The scripture says, many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. That's being a witness. Telling what God has done so that they understand it and they come to trust in God. That's being a witness. We should have this desire to testify to God's faithful deliverance, his grace, his mercy. We should witness to others about what God has done in our lives and how he can do the same in their lives. Witnessing to others should be a product of God's deliverance. After all, we have a living hope and a living savior based in his living word and we need to tell people all about the living hope they could have. There's a third product and that's willing obedience. Willing obedience. You see this in verses six through eight. It's an interesting part of the text. It says, sacrifice and offerings you do not desire. My ears you have opened, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God, or O my God. Your law is written within my heart. That's an expression of God. I have such a willing obedience to you. I want to abide in your will completely and perfectly. The truest expression of gratitude for God's deliverance, the truest expression of our gratitude for his loving mercy, for what he does in our lives, it is complete obedience to him and his will for our lives. 
In fact, what we see here are words of worship, they're inadequate. Even the sacrifices we make are insufficient. The only adequate response to God's deliverance is complete obedience to him. Abiding in his will in every aspect of life, in every form that we interact with him. Complete obedience. In fact, only complete obedience to him is a proper response to his love and mercy in our lives. When God delivers us, the only adequate response we can give back is, God, I'm completely yours to live according to your will, to abide in your will, to obey you fully. I'm yours. You own my life. That's the only adequate response. Lives dedicated to his will, joyfully living in obedience to him, that's how we're to respond to God's deliverance. So today, here you are, and here's the situation. You either are right now currently abiding in the pit of sin, the realm of death, separated from God, you need, with a heart of repentance, to call out in faith to Jesus Christ and allow him to pull you out of that and give you new life. Or it could be you have already called out to Jesus, submitted yourself to his lordship, he is your savior, you're a born-again believer. And the reality is maybe you're in a time of despair right now. Maybe you just came out of a time of despair or maybe you're going to face one soon and you need to be prepared to cry out unto the Lord. Maybe God has delivered you, and you really need to focus on the response of worship, witnessing, and willfully obeying him. I really don't know where you're at in your life, and I don't have to know. Because I know the Holy Spirit will speak to you, and God will do business with you, and you can respond to God. In just a moment, I'll be down here in the front, if you want someone to pray for you, if you have questions, if you have questions about being pulled out of the pit of sin, if you have questions about trusting Jesus as your Savior, if you just need someone to pray for you about an aspect of something going on in your life, if you're in a time of despair and you need your church family to pray for you, whatever you need, these altars are going to be open, and I'm just going to ask you to respond to God. So let me have a word of prayer, and we're going to go into our time of invitation. Lord, I ask now that by the application of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and that you would reveal to us how we should respond to you. And Lord, I pray that by your power, you remove hindrances and obstacles and that you just allow us to freely interact with you. God, we yield this time to you. Help us to respond now in the name of Jesus.